Welcome to today's message from First Baptist Church in Divine, Texas, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. You can find today's message and more information at www.fbcdivine.org. Now, let's listen to the latest teaching from First Baptist Church, Divine. Ezekiel chapter 36, they are verses 22 and 23. The Word of God says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. I start by asking a question, just wondering if, if you have wondered this yourself. You ever wondered who is Christmas for? Have you? I mean, it's a simple question, but maybe upon some thought, it doesn't seem so easy to answer. I mean, if we're shooting from the hip, we, we might say, well, Christmas is for us. Or Christmas is for Christians, or Christmas is for the world, or maybe even Christmas is for the kids. The question, though, who is Christmas for, has confused many great thinkers throughout time, especially that green, furry, pot-bellied, pear-shaped, snub-nosed recluse named the Grinch. If you're familiar with that classic story, after stealing all the Christmas decorations and the presents from a town called Whoville, the Grinch could still hear the Who's Down in Whoville singing. Do you perhaps remember that moment in that classic book? It says, he stared down at Whoville. The Grinch popped his eyes. Then he shook. What he saw was a shocking surprise. Every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presents at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or another, it came just the same. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages boxes, and bags. And he puzzled three hours till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought. Maybe Christmas doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. My friends, maybe Christmas does, perhaps, mean a little bit more. And perhaps this season has made you ask other questions aside from who is Christmas for. Questions maybe like, why did Jesus come? Why was Jesus sent to us? Why did he dwell among us? And sometimes the answers we give to these questions, they're far too elementary. I mean, we'll give answers to these things by saying things like, why did Jesus come to save us? Why was Jesus sent to us to die for us? Why did Jesus dwell among us to show us how to live? 
And while those questions are correct in and of themselves, by themselves, those answers, they share a common theme that might make us like the astronaut who trained for a solo mission into space. Have you ever heard about that astronaut? He wanted to take that solo trip so that the entire universe could revolve around his own space. In other words, at times we make the focus of Christ's work exclusively about you and about me. As if you and I were the only reason that Jesus Christ came. Are you and I the only reason that Jesus Christ came entering into time while yet the fullness of God dwelled in a fragile newborn baby? Or perhaps, like the Grinch, should we see that maybe all of this means a bit more? Well, according to the Bible, there is much more to Christmas. The primary, in fact, the supreme, the first and foremost foundational reason beneath all the other reasons that Jesus dwelled amongst us was not for us. It wasn't about us. But for God. Why the first Christmas? Well, the answer that Ezekiel gives us is that Jesus came to do some things. He came to do something on behalf of God. Well, what was that? Well, if we were to summarize today's message, we would say this. That Jesus came to vindicate the holiness of God. Jesus came to vindicate the holiness of God. Of God. That's what Ezekiel tells us in the passage that I read for us. Now, if you're not familiar with them, Ezekiel prophesied to God's people after they'd been carried off into exile in Babylon. Ezekiel was himself one of those people who had been carried off to exile, while the rest of the people during the time, uh, with the rest of the people during the time that Jeremiah, who we remember a couple weeks ago, ministered in Judah. I want to give you some bearings about this book that Ezekiel was led by the Spirit of God to write. I'm going to throw a little bit of an outline up here for you. What you find is that God leads Ezekiel to record his word where in the, those first 24 chapters of the book. Ezekiel points out that judgment has come to the people of God for their own sin. That the exile that they were carried out into had not occurred by just chance. And that it is the judgment of God on his people for their rebellious uh, hearts against God's law and God's ways. And we read on in chapters 24 through 35, the focus changes a bit. And rather than judging his own people for their rebellion, God pronounces judgments on all the nations around Israel for their refusal to obey the Lord. And when we come to chapter 36, God changes his tone. After pronouncing judgment in full on his own people and the nations surrounding his people, we then see God promise not further judgment, but restoration. See, God promises that life, God promises that light will reign where only death and darkness has been present. God promises that he will pour out his spirit on his people and the destroyed temple will be restored. And God will once more dwell with his people. And that's wonderful news for a people who have been taken from the land of promise. Yet questions arise or arose for them, and maybe these same questions arise for us. Questions like, well, how is God going to restore his people? Why will God restore his people? 
When will God restore his people? All those questions are answered in this book. Now, our focus this morning are just verses 22 and 23 of Ezekiel chapter 36, but I want to offer you some context for our focus by reading for us what you find in chapter 36, beginning back in verse 16. I'll put it up on the screen in case you don't have your Bible open still. Verse 16 says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. It's the context for verses 22 and 23 that I've read for us this morning. I mean, just a moment ago, I'll remind you that I mentioned that it is in this text that we find out why and how and when of God's action to restore his people. So we ask, again, why will God restore his people? Well, God's going to restore them for a purpose. Do you see an answer in that in your scriptures? The answer is he's going to act for the sake of his holy name. I mean, he tells us that it is his holy name which is being profaned. We see, too, how will God restore his people? How is he going to do this? This is a great wonderment. These people have been taken into exile. Everything about them has been obliterated. How is he going to do it? Well, he's going to vindicate his holiness. What about him requires vindication. Well, he's going, to do, he's going to do this restoration by vindicating the holiness of his great name. When God's name has been vindicated, all the nations, including Israel, will know that God is the Lord. Or other, in other words, that God is king of all. And in response to having his name be profaned by his people's wicked living and the nation's wicked scoffing, the Lord is stirred up to act. Well, who's God acting for? Who's God acting on behalf of? Again, verse 22 says, Thus says the Lord God, It's not for your sake, it's not for the sake of the house of Israel that I'm about to act, but I act for the sake of my holy name, says the Lord. The reason God is about to vindicate His holiness before the people of the world is not because of His people, but because of His passion for the fame of his name, or to put it another way, God is about to act for his glory. This is why it says, when you see that it says the nations or everyone, he does it so that they will know that the Lord God is in fact king of the cosmos after he acts on behalf of his great name. And I can't emphasize this detail enough. 
The phrase that we see in Ezekiel that says, and you or and the nations shall know that I am the Lord. That also occurs 57 times in this book of Ezekiel. The only other place in the Bible this phrase is used so repeatedly is the book of the Exodus. And where you find that that God shows how he saved his people out of Egypt for his own glory. How how Pharaoh and all of Egypt will know who the Lord is. God really is. What does this mean bringing this phrase into the context and issues at play in the book of Ezekiel, we wonder? It means the reason God is about to show up and the reason why God is about to restore his people, the reason upholding and founding all other reasons, the reason that gives meaning and vibrancy to all other reasons, is his own glory among the nations. This is why God saves his people. He did this this way in Egypt, and he's about to do it again when he saves his people out of Babylon. Now, just reminding us, we've answered the question about why. We've answered the question about how God will restore his people. But we've not yet answered the question of when God will do this. God will act. That we can be certain of. And God will act not for the sake of his people, but for the sake of his holy name, vindicating his holiness before all nations. But when's he going to do this? I remind you that I started our time by telling you that Ezekiel is a prophet of God who is in exile. And like the other prophets, God speaks a promise of restoration to Israel through this prophet, Ezekiel. And we know that our God is ever faithful and we remind ourselves that God has shown his ability to restore when he led his people out of the very exile that Ezekiel is in by leading Israel back into the promised land. We know that Israel comes back from from Babylon and enters into the promised land. This we know, we find it in the scriptures. We ask, is that the when? Is the return to the promised land the when that was promised? Answer is no. Answer is no, and you wonder why not. Well, it's not. It can't be because when they came back, peace did not last. Power was absent. God's glory seemed smaller than it had been whenever David and Solomon reigned. God had told them how, and God had told them the why, but he left people. But the people are left waiting for another time of restoration that wouldn't just be in part. Oh, they were left waiting for a restoration that would be whole and full and final. And this brings us to Christmas. This brings us to Christmas, but not for the beautiful lights on our homes, nor the beautiful trees that we have in our living rooms or wherever else we may have them. No, it brings us to our earlier question of getting down to the reason why we celebrate the momentous occasion of Christ's coming. Why we celebrate Christ's arrival amongst us every December. We're we're not going to set aside the remaining question that lingers, but I do want us to entertain a new question. This new question that if we can answer it, then we can answer the question about when. The question is this. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? Let me begin to answer it in this way. In the New Testament, there's a really famous letter, um, probably most prominent in our minds, one that we often refer to and one that we struggle with whenever it's taught or preached. It's Paul's letter to the Romans. 
And the apostle opens that letter uh, by declaring that all mankind are sinners. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a non-Jew. Everybody who has ever lived is a sinner. And there is where God says that every last human being has fallen short of God's standard. And because every one of us has, every one of us stands guilty and accused before God. Remember my speeding ticket story from last week? I broke that speeding law. Oh, I bring that up just to impress upon you the point. Every one of us have broken God's law. We've each done the crimes and we are helpless to avoid doing the time. So Paul tells us in that letter that we need to be redeemed. And after we're made aware of our helpless condition before a holy and righteous God, though we come to a deep awareness that we're helpless to save ourselves, that glorious letter to the church at Rome does not leave anyone hopeless. No, after all this, Paul gives us what has to be one of the most marvelous, one of the most glorious, one of the most superb and magnificent and wonderful paragraphs in the whole Bible. We find it in Romans chapter 3. It begins in verse 21. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift. Though the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood, is to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he's passed over former sins. It was to show, verse 26, his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. For those of you who are accounting, that is 129 words of glory-filled, gospel-saturated truth. That if I were to try and mine the full depths of value from them, it might take me a few years to preach through those six verses. But I'm going to try to just briefly do it justice for you this morning. And I'm going to tell you why afterwards. When I read for you from verse 21, you, you noted that it started with but now. That but now is a is a mighty blast of comfort after such a lengthy two and a half chapters of description of our sin. That but now invites us to understand that things are now different. But yet we're left to wonder, how so? How are things really different, Paul? What are you even getting at? And then he tells us in verse 22, the righteousness is the same righteousness that's revealed in the gospel. The same righteousness that all humanity seeks to suppress, even though that righteousness has been clearly revealed in creation. That's what Paul's saying in chapter 1. The same righteousness the, the, the law and our consciences will actually condemn us for because of the faith and obedience that we lack. That righteousness of God has now been revealed. How's it been revealed? Through faith. In Jesus Christ. Yes, all lack righteousness. All are sinners. All have fallen short. But all can be made righteous by His grace as a gift. 
redeemed by Christ, whom God put forward and displayed to be an atoning sacrifice in His blood. Well, how is His bloody sacrificial act of atonement applied to us? By faith. It's by faith how we receive it. Why'd God do this? Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22. To make it known that He is holy and righteous. Why would God need to make it known? Because in God's divine patience, God passed over sins long ago. So the atoning work of Jesus showed that God is still righteous and that he, is, that he simultaneously, without losing His righteousness or compromising on His justice, makes sinners who have faith in Jesus Christ righteous. Here, redemption is disclosed, displayed, described, and delighted in by all those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. My friends, that's the wonder of 129 words or the wonder of those six verses from Romans chapter 3. And I wonder if you can see why I came here after seeing what, what God promised to do in Ezekiel chapter 36. Paul is explaining what is the fulfillment of this very promise. God came. God has vindicated His holy name. Not for the sake of sinful men and women, but for God's own sake. And He vindicated Himself in the stricken and the smitten and the afflicted and the crushing of the God-man on a terrible cross. That God-man who was born in Bethlehem. And that's a tough pill for you and I to swallow as civilized people. But don't dismiss God's purpose with the cross of Jesus Christ. For it's on the cross that God has publicly displayed His righteousness. It's on the cross that He slaughtered His innocent, sinless Son for the sins of people. God did this so that all those morally bankrupt people who would have faith in Jesus Christ would receive Christ's holy and righteous credit in their bank account. This is the glorious exchange that comes by way of the cross where God has vindicated His holiness, where God has vindicated the holiness of His great name for every eye that is able to see. But we have to think about it. Where does the road to the cross begin? Well, the road to the cross begins in a manger. It begins with the Incarnation. And we bring the whole of Ezekiel chapter 36 forward with it. God did not carry out the whole of the incarnation for His people's sake. He did it for the sake of His name which had been profaned among the nations to vindicate His holiness. Or as Paul said it, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why did Jesus come? What reason beneath all other reasons was there for that first Christmas to have occurred? Well, I want to put this up there for you. Jesus came for God. And as a result of his coming here, all nations now know that God is king of all. No matter what is going on in this world, no matter what circumstances we face, Jesus came. And all the nations know that God is king of all. 
Here's another link to our text, and here's another link to Advent, the season we find ourselves in. Do you remember who saw the Christmas star and traveled to see the sun? Not Jewish people, right? No, it was the gentle magi, the Gentile magi. The fame of God's name sent the Son of God to earth. The nations saw it. And now that more nations would see the fame of his name, God now sends us to all nations with the message of this glorious gospel. I wonder, how is this landing with you right now? I wonder what you're thinking about. I wonder, how do you respond to all of this God-centered Christmas reality? Do you respond to it as good news for you? Well, if you're having trouble with this, here's another reason why this is such good news for us. If we were to read on in Ezekiel to see what happens in the rest of the chapter, we would specifically focus on verses 25 and 27 to take note of the results of God having concern for His holy name. God says this about people who come to Him through faith in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 25, When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you come to God through your faith in Jesus Christ, He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, unclean, uncleanliness, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, I'll give you a new spirit, and I will put it within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. These verses describe in great detail, if you will, the, the benefits of, that God's people receive when God comes to vindicate the holiness of His great name. You see, you and I are people with hearts that are, are naturally stony and hard. Our only hope of salvation is for God by the power of His Spirit to remove our hard and stony hearts and to give us new hearts of flesh that are moldable and soft that are fit for His forming, that are fit for God's purposes. See, what's needed is not nearly a, a new moral direction. What's needed is not merely a deeper resolve. What's needed is not merely just a stronger decision to live a better life. What's needed is, is not a new set of clever strategies, not a, a, a spiritual retreat for rehabilitation, seeking to make us live better lives with our same resources. We need to be made new. And in every meaning of the term, or else there's no hope for change. Sin totally breaks us. And now we find ourselves in need of a complete transformation from the inside out. And in these promise, in these verses, God promises that He's going to do exactly that. And when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, and the nations became, began to stream to Him. And as His gospel went out, people heard it, and people put their faith in Him. When they did, do you know what they found? When people put their faith in Jesus Christ, they found a new heart, they found a new spirit, they found a new obedience to the Word of God that they could have never mustered by themselves. They found a change so deep in them that it affected what they desired. 
Do you know what Jesus called this change in John chapter 3? He called it a new birth. He described it as being born again. And this is good news of great joy. This is a call for unspeakable joy. God has come for His fame and the very people who deserve exile for their sin now by faith get benefits that they do not deserve. Benefits that transform their very existence. Is that you? Have you been born from above as Jesus spoke about? Where Jesus says in John chapter 3 and verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And if you've been born of the spirit, then you can come with complete confidence and say, I know I am not yet what I ought to be. I know I'm not yet what I hope to be. But praise his grace, I also know that I am no longer what I used to be. I am new. But why would he show such favor to undeserving sinners like you and I? Verse 22 of Ezekiel chapter 36. That's the same thing we've been lingering on this morning. Not for your sake. Not for your sake. But for the sake of my holy name. That's why. This great work of God in the incarnation to clear His name from being profane, to proclaim His holiness, to give sinners exactly what we need for salvation, God does for His own glory. God wants us to know it. That's why He says, let that be known to you. I want to bring this all to a close with a question. Do you know this? Or do you know this? Okay? Do you know this with your head? Or do you know this with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? Is this a fully embodied faith? Or is this just an intellectual exercise that you live out Sunday to Sunday? And this is not as pointless a question as you might think. And your answer to it will actually reveal if you are a believer or an unbeliever. See, many in our world are familiar with the Christmas story. Many know the details of it. But do those many truly know it? You see, the difference between believers and unbelievers is not knowledge. The difference between the two goes far deeper. The matter of knowledge about the Christmas story is by and large the same between the believer and the unbeliever. But you know what's not the same? While the matter of knowledge may be the same, the manner of knowing, knowing is Vastly different. For on one hand, unbelievers may know a great deal. They may know the same Christmas story we know. But in all their knowing, they don't see it as anything of true worth. They don't see it as anything of greatness, anything of a holy and heavenly light that captivates them and draws them in. And the believer, on the other hand, knows this Christmas story and in their knowing of it, they see beauty and glory and worth and excellence and gravity and gladness and hope because they see it in a soul-saving, transforming light. So I return to the question, do you just know this 
Do you know this? Do you know the Christmas story with your head? Or do you know the Christmas story with your heart? Do you know what Cindy Lou Who knew and what the Grinch learned? That Christmas isn't about ribbons or tags or boxes or bags? Do you know that, that Christmas means just a little bit more? May you know, and may the knowledge of this story give you a great and vast knowledge of the God who arrived and dwelled among us. Not for you, not for me, but for his great glory. Thank you for tuning in to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church Divine, located at 308 West Hondo Avenue in Divine, Texas. We invite you to be our guest at our 8.30 a.m. or 11 a.m. services each Sunday. You can find more information about First Baptist Church Divine at www.fbcdivine.org, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you.